Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to HashiCorp's fiscal 2023 first quarter earnings call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to your speaker today, Alex Kurtz, Head of Investor Relations. Thank you. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to HashiCorp's fiscal 2023 first quarter earnings call. This afternoon, we will be discussing our financial results for the first quarter announced in our press release issued after the market closed today. With me are HashiCorp CEO, Dave McJanet, CFO, Navam Willienda, and CTO and co-founder, Armand Dagar. At the close of the market today, in conjunction with our earnings press release, we have published an earnings deck that contains additional financial information pertaining to our quarter. We plan to do this each quarter before earnings call and encourage you to review the deck in advance of our calls. You can access the decks on our investor website at ir.hashicorp.com. Today's call will contain forward-looking statements, which are made under the safe harbor provisions of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Forward-looking statements, including statements concerning financial and business trends, our expected future business and financial performance and financial condition, and our guidance for the second quarter of fiscal 2023 and the full fiscal year 2023. These statements may be identified by words such as expect, anticipate, intend, plan, believe, seek, or will, or similar statements. These statements reflect our views as of today only and should not be relied upon as representing our views at any subsequent date and we do not undertake any duty to update these statements. Forward-looking statements by their nature address matters that are subject to risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from expectations. During the call, we will also discuss certain non-GAAP financial measures, which are not prepared in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. The financial measures presented on this call are prepared in accordance with GAAP unless otherwise noted. A reconciliation of these non-GAAP financial measures to the most directly comparable GAAP financial measures, as well as how we define these metrics and other metrics, is included in our earnings press release, which has been furnished to the SEC and is also available on our website at ir.hashicorp.com. With that, let me turn the call over to Dave. Dave? Thank you, Alex, and welcome, everyone, to our first quarter earnings call. We're excited to share with you that Q1 was a solid quarter for HashiCorp as we exceeded our guidance with revenue of $100.9 million, representing year-over-year growth of 51%, along with the trailing four-quarter average net dollar retention rate of 133%. We're also pleased to announce that during Q1, we had our second customer reach $10 million in annual recurring revenue. The most recent transaction by this global financial institution was a new commitment to console during the quarter, one of our largest console transactions ever. We'll discuss the strategic customer in a few moments. Also in Q1, current non-GAAP remaining performance obligations reached $305.2 million, representing 64% year-over-year growth, and we added 49 customers with greater than or equal to $100,000 in annual recurring revenue, reaching a total of 704. Our HashiCorp Cloud Platform offerings reached $8.8 million in revenue, representing 9% of subscription revenue in the quarter. 
We're very pleased with the performance of HCP in Q1, and as we look out to the rest of the year, are excited about adoption trends as we continue to roll out new features and capabilities. I thought it would be helpful to briefly reiterate what we see as our unique approach to the marketplace as we help customers navigate this once-in-a-decade architectural shift that is recasting enterprise applications to the cloud. As a reminder, we help enterprises with their transition to cloud and inevitably multi-cloud by delivering a suite of products that provide a consistent cloud operating model. As enterprises look to standardize their approach, they need a system of record for each layer of the infrastructure stack, and that is what our portfolio provides. Why do organizations choose Sasha Corp? Well, first, our products are designed with a cloud-first and cloud-agnostic approach, using infrastructure as code for provisioning, identity as the basis of security, and service and service name as the basis of networking. Each of these represent the core paradigms of the cloud model. Second, our global footprint of practitioners using our open source tools and the free tier of our cloud offerings makes our products the de facto standards in the marketplace for cloud provisioning, infrastructure as code, managing secrets in the cloud, and increasingly for the still developing cloud service networking market. We're convinced that for most companies, the practitioner will decide how they approach cloud which is why we focus on the practitioner experience above all else. Finally, we've developed a rich ecosystem of technology integrations and partners around each of our products, which further accelerates adoption and standardization. Our products are designed to enable third parties to easily integrate their services into Vault, Terraform, Console, and our other products. And as we shared last quarter in our 10K, we now stand at over 2,050 providers in our Terraform ecosystem alone and 900 partners in total as of the end of last year. With over 3,000 paying customers, using our software today, we believe all three of these differentiators have created a significant barrier to entry around our offerings. With that background, I'd like to take a few minutes today to highlight important trends that we are seeing for our products and the broad demand for cloud and multi-cloud adoption that is fueling our business. Specifically, I'd like to highlight the continued emergence of central platform teams within larger enterprises that we touched on briefly last quarter. During the quarter, our field teams were able to travel more freely to meet with customers, and Armand and I spent much of the quarter having in-person meetings with members of the Global 2000. In those meetings, we've been hearing a consistent theme around the emergence of centralized cloud program offices, or what they often call platform teams within these accounts. The technology that underpins the transition to cloud and the growth of multi-cloud environments is fairly well known at this point. What is less well understood is the importance of the teams that are managing this transformation. As companies undertake cloud migrations or digital transformation, CIOs often find themselves in the difficult position of sifting through the disparate pieces of infrastructure and cloud resources that their various teams have deployed in the past, usually with little or no coordination. This has cost implications, but also efficiency implications. Siloed teams with siloed infrastructure and little strategies underlies it all. And when developers want to develop and ship a new product to serve customers, they often encounter constraints and delays from their ops, security, and networking teams who would like to apply some level of governance. Oshkorp has sold to these various silo teams to help them with their immediate cloud infrastructure issues for years, helping them with provisioning, security, networking, and application delivery. However, we are now being brought in to help companies standardize their cloud infrastructure across teams. In many instances, in fact, those early adopters of our products are now being assigned to be the platform teams for their organizations as a whole. The platform team is the group that consolidates and standardizes cloud infrastructure for an entire company. 
It controls cloud infrastructure as a single cost center, creates standard processes, and establishes compliance protocols for applications and infrastructure. With this central team in place, companies can control costs and enforce consistent security policies, allowing developers to deploy applications with far less friction. Our cloud operating model, with an integrated stack of products, including Terraform, Vault, Console, and others, enables these platform teams to succeed. We are seeing success in our larger deals each quarter being driven by these dynamics. We also believe that part of the success we are seeing in larger accounts is driven by our programmatic approach to selling what we call a LEAR, adopt, land, expand, extend, and renew. This motion happens initially in a single business group and is ultimately mimicked at a larger scale as platform teams are created to drive standardization across the organization. We believe that this methodology, coupled with our product innovation, can lead to durable long-term growth. We continue to see ourselves as uniquely positioned to enable the largest of enterprises in their decade-long move to multi-cloud across what 650 Group has estimated as a $73 billion TAM through 2026. We saw these concepts play out in Q1, and now I'd like to turn your attention to notable first quarter transactions. I'd like to highlight a few examples of strategic deals we completed that demonstrate our execution in the marketplace and show our adopt, land, expand, extend, renew motion in action. First, a land deal. A global insurance and financial services organization landed as an enterprise Vault user in Q1 after adopting Vault open source in 2019 for a small departmental use case. Vault, combined with our residential solution architect services, is enabling this customer to address audit findings and a global security mandate to address the management of sensitive credentials. By centralizing the end-to-end -end process aligned to our jointly developed multi-cloud architecture, Vault will address significant worldwide risk of exposure for this company while providing cost efficiencies by automating the management and creation of globally secure credentials. Next, an expand deal with one of the largest global financial organizations in the world. This customer expanded with Terraform Enterprise to standardize its infrastructure provisioning approach to bring secure applications to market more quickly. This will also enable them to reduce the operational costs of their estate by preventing the over-provisioning of resources. Terraform and Vault are replacing homegrown and self-supported open source solutions enabling the customer's business groups to deploy new applications on multiple cloud platforms in a consistent manner. And third, an extend deal example. An energy company extended and became a console customer during Q1 after recently becoming a Terraform customer. The customer recognized that console was an agnostic platform that provides a consistent approach to service networking across multiple clouds. The customer chose console because it enabled them to accelerate the time to market for new applications which are being migrated from private data centers to AWS. As an added benefit, Console allows the customer to extend the life of their existing networking hardware via the Console Terraform sync capability. And finally, I'd like to spend a minute on HashiCorp's second $10 million ARR customer that I mentioned earlier. This organization is also an example of a customer who started working with us around a single product and expanded and extended over time to include Terraform Vault and Console. This global financial institution began its journey using Packer, one of our open source products, in 2017. It expanded to Terraform and then Vault Enterprise after that. As its cloud journey matured, it faced heightened scrutiny and complexity across disparate networking control planes. These challenges led the organization to add console enterprise this quarter. 
Console Enterprise provides a cloud-agnostic approach to service networking that allows the customer to link a variety of infrastructure platforms, from private data center to cloud to the edge. All of this enables applications teams to embrace these new platforms without compromising security, resiliency, or agility. We're proud to count companies like these as our customers and are deeply committed to continuing to earn their trust. And with that, let me turn the call over to Navon. Thank you, Dave, and thanks again to everyone for joining us today. Turning your attention to the top-line financial results, we produced solid results in our first quarter of FY 2023, which exceeded the guidance from last quarter. Our total revenue increased 51% year-over-year, and our trailing four-quarter average net dollar retention rate reached 133%, which was over our 120% target rate. Looking at our geographic segments, 78% of our revenue came from the Americas, 16% from EMEA, and 6% from the APAC regions. The Americas region is the largest contributor to our revenue, but we are sequentially increasing the percentage of revenue from the rest of the world. As you know, on average, we have a high level of visibility into our revenue due to its recurring nature. This quarter, we saw more of our subscription revenue come in as recurring revenue. Approximately 96% of our subscription revenue was recurring. Moving to the expense side, HashiCorp continues to prioritize resource allocation efficiency in the business. Doing so allowed us to come in ahead of our non-GAAP gross margin, non-GAAP operating income, as well as our GAAP and non-GAAP net income plans. We incurred a net loss of $0.43 per share on a GAAP basis and $0.17 per share on a non-GAAP basis. We track several key business metrics, which we believe help in understanding our business and financial performance in our journey to deliver durable growth. You'll find a lot of our KPI detail in the accompanying deck on our ir.hashicorp.com site. I encourage you to review that in detail. Focusing on one of the core business metrics, the greater or equal to 100K customer cohort, we made solid progress during the first quarter. We continue to execute our adopt, land, expand, and extend, and renew model, as highlighted in the customer activity in the quarter, which Dave just spoke about. On a trailing 12-month basis, we had 181 of these customers and grew their revenue from 124,000 per customer to 141,000 per customer in the quarter, a 14% year-over-year increase. Our HCP business continues to show strong momentum. We grew our HCP revenue by 255% year-over-year. We launched several new HCP products and features this past quarter as we continue to invest in the platform. We are excited about the adoption trends we see with our cloud products. Now I want to provide our guidance for the second quarter and the full year of FY 2023. For the second quarter of FY 23, we expect total revenue in the range of 101 million to 103 million. We expect Q2 non-GAAP operating loss in the range of 59 million to 56 million. We expect a non-GAAP net loss per share to be between 32 cents and 30 cents based on 184.3 million weighted average basic and fully diluted shares outstanding. For the full fiscal year 2023, we expect total revenue in the range of 422 million 
and 432 million. We expect FY 2023 non-GAAP operating loss in the range of 224 million and 216 million. We expect non-GAAP net loss per share to be between $1.19 and $1.15 based on 184.9 million weighted average basic and diluted shares used in computing net uh, non-GAAP net loss per share. We are pleased with our Q1 results. And with that, Dave Armand and I are happy to take any of your questions. Alex? Thanks, Navon. As a quick note, during the quarter, we will be attending the Bank of America Global Technology Conference and the William Blair Annual Growth Conference. With that, operator, let's go to our first question. Thank you. As a reminder to ask a question, you'll need to press star one on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Please stand by. We compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from Jason Ada with William Blair. You may proceed. Yeah, thank you. Hey, guys, uh, did, did you bake any macro pressures into your guidance? And then how resilient do you think your business might be uh, if we do enter some type of a, a recession or downturn? So, hey, Jason, thanks for the question. This is Dave. I, I'll maybe answer the first bit, and I'll ask it. We'll let uh, Navam and Armand weigh in as well. You know, I think generally speaking, what we saw, what we have seen in Q1 is pretty consistent with prior quarters in terms of front-end demand uh, of, the, uh, of the pipeline build side. But maybe we'll let uh, Navam comment specifically on, on, on the, the guidance question. Yeah, thanks, Jason. So, you know, in Q1, we're seeing, we're seeing some pretty solid demand signals, so we're comfortable with our Q2 and FY23 guidance that we've provided. Uh, we're aware of global macro realities that are out there in the marketplace with the rising inflation, interest rates, and the conflict in Europe. So, as always, we're taking a measured, year, measured view towards the back half of the year. Uh, but that, all that being said, you know, the fundamentals of digital transformation and, and cloud adoption are very much intact, and these are, these are very long-cycle markets. Right? So we're encouraged by the year. Yeah, and then maybe I'll just add, uh, you know, anecdotally, I've spent the last few weeks visiting customers in, uh, across North America, Europe, and, and Asia-Pacific regions. And I think what we've seen is that it's a pretty consistent trend across customers, you know, regardless of region. They're, you know, continuing on their journey to cloud, continuing on their journeys to, to digital transformation. And I think, you know, almost all of those customers see that as a, you know, long-term secular transition for them, you know, realizing there might be some, you know, you know, macro factors along the way, but most of these customers are, are sort of deeply committed to that journey. And I think, you know, for many of them, they've already made multi-year commitments to their cloud partners as well. Yeah, Jason, I was asking you maybe the, the second implicit question is around uh, the durability part. You know, our products go to market around a very simple value proposition of cost reduction, risk mitigation, and time to market, right? Think about Terraform just as an example. You know, one of the core value propositions of Terraform is allowing you to not over-provision compute resources. Uh, that's a cost savings. The vault is, is allowing you to save uh, costs and automation by rotating certificates around it. You know, it could be a 10,000 machine estate in a script rather than having people do it. So the value proposition is actually very clearly aligned to risk, cost, and time to market, and I think we're pretty fine-tuned on that. The other thing I so, – so, so net is I think there that – actually plays really well despite the environment. The second bit, when you think about the role that our products play, you know, unlike, say, a database which is tied to a specific application, our products are, are more akin to a utility once deployed, 
right? Vault underpins all the applications in your estate. And so as a result, it tends to be, you know, you tend to see that in our NDE numbers naturally. Uh, you know, so both on kind of the new business side as well as the ability of our existing customer relationships, you know, are generally in a, in a, in a, in a compelling spot. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Mark Murphy with J.P. Morgan. You may proceed. Hey, Mark. Yes, thank you very much. So, hey, um, good afternoon. It, it, it feels like this is going to be a pretty amazing year for the cloud platform. You're going from one product to, I think, five or six. You're extending some of those to Azure. Is it reasonable to think uh, that that's going to propel the customer ads uh, pretty robustly or even um, – you know, just maybe start to influence some some incremental migrations um, from self-managed to, to cloud. If you could just help us maybe sketch that out, and then I have a quick follow-up. Yeah, hey, Mark, it's Dave. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think your observation is correct. Like, this is a very new effort for us as a net new audience that we're targeting uh, in terms of it tends to be the longer tail of the customer base that are big users of, of the tech is sort of who you tend to attract with that, that aspect of our offering as the hosted offering. The second thing I'll just underscore is just to your point how early this is. I think we ended the year with really a couple of products uh, running on, on HCP, and to your point, you know, we, we have a few more to, to roll out, and certainly we'll see announcements to that end. So I think we're pretty bullish on it. Um, but it is a net new business for us. It's really a net new channel. So, yes, I think, I think what you'll see reasonably is continued adoption. As we aggregate people on the free tier of those uh, platforms, they do uh, convert into paid customers uh, with slightly less friction, so certainly it's compelling in that respect. So I think we're we're optimistic. I would say we 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 are really looking at this as a net new thing. We we're not yet, yet in the position where we are flipping existing customers to renew onto onto HCP, and that's not a motion we've begun. Just to be clear, so it's really just net new. Okay. I think once once, uh, once we do that, maybe it'll be different. Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. We we done there. Oh, okay. I have a follow up. Go ahead. Okay. Yes, yeah, so, um, Navam, um, it's great to see the the, the increase in, in uh, guidance and, and the overall traction. Um, I'm I'm just I'm trying to connect the dots on this, there's this tremendously large volume of customer ads um, this quarter. It's kind of an explosion, but it, it, it didn't translate maybe as much to the license revenue um, or the RPO growth or, the, or just the or kind of the sequential revenue growth. And I'm just wondering, um, should we interpret that as more, it was more kind of smaller cloud customers that will scale later, maybe a little less of the uh, longer term kind of larger deals that, that drive some of the other metrics, or how, how, how do we connect, connect the dots on some of that? Uh, yeah, thanks, Mark. So um, I think to your first point and, and to your earlier comment about HCP, very encouraged by that momentum and the strong customer net, net customer additions that we're seeing there. So we're encouraged by that momentum, and we're encouraged by the volume of customer additions we saw in, in Q1. Specific to Q1 subscription revenue, you know, one point to note is that this was a very high recurring revenue quarter, which is great because that gives us visibility into the forward quarters uh, that we're seeing. So that's what you saw in Q1, high uh, subscription recurring revenue business out there that, that came in in Q1 which is obviously great for future quarters. To your point earlier on the RPO side, uh, you know, we saw high RPO growth in the 50-plus 50, 50 percent and CRPO, sorry, high CRPO growth in the 50-plus percent, which is shows the volume of, of growth of uh, sort of our, our uh, contracts that are coming in in the quarter. Thanks, Mark. Next question. 
Thank you. Our next question comes from Natalia Kidron with Oppenheimer. You may proceed. Uh, thanks. Hey, guys. Uh, I did want to focus on HCP. Um, perhaps you can uh, talk about the uh, customer adoption there. In what way is it different today than it was perhaps two, three quarters ago? And I know you don't have that much of a track record there, but maybe you could talk about the changing patterns of customers and how they use this. And in the past, you've talked about HCP as a way to go more lower end, um, you know, open up the market more on the low end, the mid-tier. Are those really the customers that you see coming in, or is it really still large customers that are just given their hybrid deployments are also considering and deploying uh, HCP? Yeah, great question, Atai. You know, I think, uh, you know, as Dave mentioned, just sort of reiterating, it is a it is sort of a blend of what we're seeing. On one side, it is opening up a new channel for us, so it is a new audience and is that kind of long tail that he mentioned. So, you know, these are customers that we would not have historically engaged with with sort of our outside field motion that are now, you know, coming in, you know, obviously driving lower ASP, more of a transactional business. At the same time, we are seeing some of these larger enterprise organizations that are engaging with HCP at more of a departmental or project level where, great, you know, I have a project that's being built in native cloud, you know, rather than try and operate it themselves, they're going directly through to HCP. You know, I think the the... By and large, most of where we're seeing sort of the net new logos is the, that sort of long tail. And we expect to see more of sort of those uh, the kind of enterprise customers as they continue to gain comfort with the idea that core infrastructure is going to be, you know, provided as a managed service. And I think, you know, that is probably the, the biggest question mark for us is just the, the comfort of those customers as they migrate to the notion of, hey, this is tier one critical infrastructure being provided as a managed service. Kind of very good. And maybe as a follow-up, Navam, uh, on gross margins, uh, good start for the year. You've talked about, I think, last last quarter about 80% gross margin target for for the year. With the strong start that you have, um, would you care to revise that up, perhaps? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Itai. Always always making me revise up. Uh, the so we're we're pleased with beating the gross margin plan. There's, there's obviously three constituents to gross margin. There's the self-managed margin, the cloud margin, and the uh, professional services margin. The mix of that impacts the margins. So the good news that we're seeing is, is we beat our plan on cloud margins, and it's coming in ahead of uh, what our expectations were. So we're comfortable with where we're landing uh, at the 80% mark, and you know, over time we should see as cloud takes a, a bigger share, uh, you know, we, should, we should land towards the, the, the long-term targets. All that being said, you know, we're we're a very high gross margin company and we're pleased with that. Very good. Thanks, Thanks guys. Next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Brad Sims with Bank of America Securities. You may proceed with your question. Oh, great. Thanks, guys, for taking my question. I, I wanted to ask a question about HashiCorp Cloud as well, please. Um, is there something about these customers that, that are opting for the cloud option that you think there, there's a different profile and trajectory of expand? In other words, do you think that those customer cohorts might have a higher propensity to add more over time if they're committing infrastructure to the cloud here with HashiCorp? Uh, is it a different different profile of customer? Yes, thanks, Mr. This is, yeah, this is Dave. I, I would say yes, it is to a degree. I think it, it's kind of in, it's kind of in two categories. I think one is that's sort of the perhaps the longer tail customers have indicated. But number two is the departmental user inside of these larger organizations 
which uh, in some respects lack the expertise of running the stuff, even though they know they need it. So they almost def- that enables us, in a sense, to be their platform team for them. The implication for those people that that on board, really, really at the departmental uh, level, is they get up and running far faster. So yes, you can infer that you know I would expect those customers on board and get to uh, their expansion and extension to cross-product faster. And I think that's certainly the design principle of why we've created Oshkorp Cloud, not as just a cloud version of one of our products, but rather as a single common chassis into which all our products drop that allows us to then encourage that motion. So, yes, NET is is two audiences. Yes, I think uh, I certainly believe I'm optimistic that that it leads to – Adoption faster. I would also maybe the last thing. I think I think you know generally we're surprised at at the growing appetite for people to to consume HCP uh, in the larger customers. I mean I think the operational reality of 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 you know infrastructure products um, both makes people slower to, to adopt, but also once they start running them themselves, realize how critical they are. And, and so I think you know certainly optimistic and arm and travel certainly the last quarter you saw that expressed more often than I would have expected. Hey, can you run this stuff for us and uh, so, you know, we'll, we meet that market as it comes. Super optimistic. Great. Th- thanks, Dave. And then one more, if I may, please. Uh, the, the NRR acceleration here last several quarters, where would you say that incremental uh, expansion is coming from? Is it more on the expand side or more on the extend side as customers go from category to category, or is it more just the expansion within whatever product they're running, whether it's Terraform or Vault or Console? Yeah. The short answer is it's both. I'll just sort of recall that sort of our pricing model is aligned to as more applications go to cloud, more, you know, more usage of our products results. So for each one of our products has that natural motion to it. So what you're seeing as people's cloud estates grow, we are in some sense a portion of that spend category. And certainly the fact that we can uh, procure that through the, the marketplaces and those cloud providers makes that relatively frictionless. And then number two, there's the extend cross-product opportunity. You know, I think, as we said before, there's just a maturity journey that people go on. They sort of start with the Terraform problem or the Vault problem, and then they realize they have the other problem, and they sort of naturally extend. And, and that is just the journey. So it's, it's almost inevitable that one customer becomes an extend customer. Uh, and I think what you're seeing as those cohorts go, that just is what's happening. So it's, it's really both. Thanks, thanks Brad. Great to hear. Thanks. Next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Michael Turtz with KeyBank. You may proceed. Hey, guys. Nice quarter. Um, first, it's sort of an extension of macro question. And, but um, did you see as a result of uh, macro inflation, recession, fears, et cetera, any change in people's attitude, to, A, towards cloud migration, and, two, although clearly you wouldn't see it in your numbers for big deals, which are big deals, um, which are good, uh, any any change in their willingness to do larger projects? I mean, do you have a point of view on one, probably? Yeah, no, I think um, great question. I, I think in general, what we've seen is most of these large enterprises have you know embarked on their cloud journey you know several years ago, and I think they see it as a transition that's going to take them you know five ten years to really complete. Uh, you know, in, in many ways, I think you know we look back on, on things like the hypervisor transition, and that was a decade long transition for a lot of those customers, and you know, there's going to be a lot of macro bumps in a decade-long period. <laughs> so I think that's kind of the attitude of the customers. They realize that, you know, inevitably they have to do these transitions. They have to sort of, you know, uh, innovate and drive the sort of transformation of their digital estate. 
So, you know, although, yeah, our European customer is very aware of, you know, obviously ground conflict there, you know, customers around the world are, you know, aware of the macro environment, I don't think we've seen much impact to, to their plans around, you know, their adoption of cloud uh, to a significant extent. And on the large deal size, in other words, are people chunking up and doing smaller projects? Again, obviously, look, your, your big deal numbers are great. You signed another $10 million, so the numbers you wouldn't think so, but Anecdotally, any, any reluctance to in, get involved in larger and, say, longer implementation time type of projects? No, honestly, I think it's pretty consistent. I think the constraint is, is more around uh, expertise in their particular region, truthfully. Like that is, as with any platform transition that, that occurs, uh, you know, there's a skills challenge around people's understanding of that new platform. Just like when we went from the mainframe world to the client-server world, it took some time for the skills in the marketplace to, to emerge. You know, I think... You know, that's the bigger constraint than anything else. Okay, great. And maybe the piece I would add here is, if, you know, just talking about that the sort of second $10 million customer. I think what's clear to our customers as they get to sort of a critical scale with us is they realize we will be a strategic partner to them. We are not a point vendor, you know, solving yeah. one problem. We offer sort of a suite of solutions. We're going to solve, you know, multiple problems for them. And so I think there's a natural comfort with the idea that you guys are going to be a generational partner to me as I'm going through this transition and they want to, you know, have a deep relationship and, and sort of plan over a multi-year horizon because, you know, we impact their strategy over a multi-year horizon. Yeah, I'm just going to echo that point because, because Armand's exactly right. That is what we hear over and over again. If you think about the customer, it is generally a platform team inside of a large organization. They, you know, in these kinds of environments, their bias is to consolidate the relationships, not expand them. The fact that we have many products that address many of their problems from a single buying center, single vendor, is actually very compelling. And, and that term, strategic partner, uh, is the one that, that gets used over and over and over again. Like we're now, you know, certainly a significant material proportion of the Global 2000 as in that in seat, and, and I think that's the basis of our growth opportunity from here. Thanks, Michael. Right. Next, next Thank question. You. Thank you. Our next question comes from Alex Zuckin with Wolf Research. You may proceed. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking the question. So, uh, not to, to kind of beat the, beat the dead horse on macro, but um, maybe ask a different way. How should we think about the, you know, as you looked at your pipelines and you evaluated them, any change in the length of the sales cycles, the velocity of uh, pipeline conversion, or any elements there that, that, you know, make you have an added level of conservatism uh, into the guidance? Uh, and then I got a quick follow-up. Uh, yeah, Alex, thanks for that. Look, in, in Q1, we're seeing consistent and, and solid pipeline, and and, uh, and we're comfortable with what we're looking at at Q2 in terms of uh, what the guidance number is. For the back half, you know, we're very aware of, of macro, so what we've taken is a wait-and-see attitude there on the, on, the, on the guide. So at this point, demand remains pretty strong, and, and we're encouraged with, uh, with how the year's looking. Perfect. And then I guess is there, um, you know, if, if you, was there anything in terms of the duration uh, that that was either different or or nuanced this quarter? I look at the total dollars added on total RPO, uh, and and sequentially they were a little bit uh, lighter than maybe this time last year. But then current RPO was actually really strong. And then how, you know the, the logical question we're going to get is kind of to bridge the. If I, if I look at current RPO change plus rev, subscription revenue, it looks like it's 
you know, over 50%. And then the guidance for, for Q4, I believe, just implies, you know, a, a top-line growth number you know, that starts with a two for subscription revenue. So just how, how do we bridge that? Yeah, good good observation. Uh, so the, the the CRPO number is a good proxy as to what the one year remaining uh, you know revenue could be, not including the the renewals. So that's the that's the number that you looked at look at on a, on an apples to apples basis for year over year. The duration did come down slightly, and that's what you're seeing on the on the total RPO growth line. Uh, so it is reflected in the total RPO growth, which is which is subject to duration. Also on the revenue line, you're seeing more uh, ratability of revenue. So all those things are connected. Understood. Thanks, Alex. Next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Brad Reback, which people, you may proceed. Uh, great. Thanks very much. Navan, on the OPEX guide for 2Q, uh, fairly significant step up after two quarters of, of basically flat just trying to figure out the degree of conservatism versus seasonal aspects that might be impacting it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. And, and maybe a step back to talk a little bit about the, the, the OPEX philosophy here, which we touched on last call as well. The plan is relatively consistent. We have a very high net dollar retention rate, high gross margin, and a very solid balance sheet. So we, we made a decision to invest in the company. And starting Q4, to show leverage in the business on an annual basis uh, as we move forward uh, beyond Q4. So that's sort of the shape of the operating income line that you're, you're, you're seeing in the guidance. Now, that being said, in Q1, we're very encouraged by delivering the top-line performance with better-than-expected operating income, and that's just part of our DNA at being a, a company that's very focused on, on efficiency. So we're, we're looking forward to delivering more uh, more of that in the future and, and sticking to our DNA of being an efficient company. If I just make also, perhaps just a meta point on that, to echo Navam's point, we've been a very efficient company historically if you look at our cash consumption relative to our scale today all through our life because of a design principle around efficiency. We have, on top of that, a, a high gross margin business with strong NDE. That being said, we're constantly looking at you know, investment efficacy opportunities, and you certainly saw that in, in, in Q1. But we also think there's an opportunity cost to not investing aggressively, given the blue ocean around us in this market and the buttressed balance sheet that we have to work with. So that sort of underpins our philosophy. Hopefully it gives us sense. That's great. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks, Brad. Next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Derek Wood with Callum. You may proceed. Hi, this is Carson on for Derek. Thanks for taking our questions here. Um, so security seems to be one of the strongest spending priorities in software right now. Can you give us a sense on how Vault is performing relative to the broader portfolio and what kind of trends you're seeing around initial deal sizes and expansion? Yeah, I'll make a comment to Dave. That appreciate the question. Yeah, I think, I, I, honestly, it's very, very uh, consistent with what we've seen before. Our business remains relatively balanced across the, the different aspects of our portfolio. Um, in terms of deal sizes, yeah, again, very, very consistent. I think what, what you've seen from us is, you know, concerted push for higher velocity lands at a lower cost, and you, that's certainly an instruction to our sales team. You know, let's land the, the smaller transaction faster as opposed to going up the larger, larger one, and I think that holds true across our portfolio. So what you've seen is actually an increase in the customer count and a slight drop in the ASP corresponding to that, which is on purpose. <laughs> um, you know, as you know, when you're talking about infrastructure, people tend to say, okay, hold on, let's price this across the entire state, and that tends to slow things down. 
the more we can constrain that to a starting point uh, to grow from, that's what we try and do. So net, no real change in the in the in the dynamics across products or across deal sizes, truthfully. But yes, uh, security and vault as the broker of identity across your machine estate uh, is one of those fundamental investments that I think most companies are making. Yeah, and I think the piece I would add to that uh, is just from a from sort of a tailwind perspective. Certainly, customers are you know cybersecurity is very very top of mind, and I think for us having a zero trust narrative and a story around a portfolio of products rather than just Vault. Clearly, Vault is sort of our anchor play there where we tend to sort of land in customers, but then being able to tell a compelling story around, great, how can we extend that to service networking and really do, you know, bring a zero trust approach to network segmentation with console, right? And I think you saw that in our second $10 million customer where they're really looking at, great, how do we embrace those zero trust primitives and really extend that beyond just identity with Vault and application security into the networking aspect, and then looking beyond into our portfolio with Boundary as we think about extending that further into privilege access management. I think that has been very compelling for our customers because we can present that kind of end-to-end zero-trust architecture uh, and certainly very top of mind for customers. Got it. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from James Fish with Piper Sandler. You may proceed. Hey, guys, thanks for the questions. Um, one of the items we've heard over the last few weeks is just the strategy around the premium model. Um, how are you looking to better monetize some of the core offerings, and in particular Terraform? You know, does it make sense longer term to put a limited time frame for the free version or put in a few versions behind the paid offering? Yeah, go, go ahead, Norman. Yeah, great. Thanks for the question. You know, I think we've had a very consistent approach to how we monetize our open source, and it's, you know, premised around the idea around standardization of a whole market, right? So I think we invest genuinely in the success of our open source practitioners and really focus on how do we solve the technical problem for the individual users, uh, whether that might be provisioning with Terraform, whether that's secret management with Vault, you know, et cetera. So the open source is really, you know, meant to be ungated in that sense to really drive practitioner bottom-up adoption, drive market standardization. And I think you see that with Terraform now having, you know, 2,000-plus integrations. And then ultimately the commercialization is driven by a differentiated commercial product that solves the organizational challenges of using those products at scale. So what we're not trying to monetize is the lone individual users. It's as you go from a single user to a team, great, that's where our entry-level commercial products are focused. And then as you move from a team to maybe a broader department level or platform level, it's how do you move from collaboration at the lower end to really around multi-tenancy, governance, security, policy, you know, operations at scale at the upper end. And that's really where we focus on it rather than trying to create sort of a second-class experience around the open source. Got it. And just, you know, to circle back on the pipeline part that you mentioned, Dave, you know, as you were talking about the pipeline here being pretty consistent in terms of the front end of the pipeline, what are you seeing in terms of the lower part of the pipe and specifically on the large deals that could become plus $10 million contributors? As it sounds like you're focused more on the, the low-hanging fruit, the smaller customers at this point, just as you, you kind of save some OPEX here. No, not at all. I would say, I would say, I think, you know, we, we, we have a segment view of our, of how we cover the, cover the market. And, and what I was referring to previously was really the cloud offerings have a natural affinity for that lower end segment. And, and that certainly has its own unit economics that we manage separately. Uh, the inference on the, on the, on the rest of our business, no, that's really unchanged. You know, what I was referring to is that the, the pipeline build in the, in, in the, the other segments continues to be strong. 
you know, I think the guidance that Navang shared is reflective of just an awareness of the macro law, you know, towards the end of the year, that, that which, you know, will become more clear as we get close to it. And that's really the visibility we have today, which is, which is uh, we see a lot of positive signs uh, in, the, in, the, in the pipeline. All right. Thanks, James. Next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Sanjeet Singh with Morgan Stanley. You may proceed. All right. Thank you for squeezing me in, and congrats on the on the really astounding uh, customer metrics this quarter, both on the 100K side and on the total customer base. That was, that was really nice to see. Um, Dave, I wanted to pick up on a comment that you made on, on an earlier question around, you know, um, the multiple sources or the multiple value propositions that the platform provides. And I guess the spirit of my question is the ability to hone in on maybe the um, cost efficiency, cost savings, PCO aspect as part of the sales playbook. Is there an opportunity here to go into the customer base and say, we can you know, dramatically lower your hardware spend by consolidating firewalls or your, um, or your load balancers as a, you know, as, we think, as you think about a one-two combination of, of console um, uh, as, well, as well as vault um, in, a, in a potentially tougher send environment. Um, is that a playbook that can be used to, to, to a certain degree? And how effective that ha has that message been in the past during prior periods of uncertainty? Yeah, thanks, thanks Roger. The, I'd say yes. You know, I think that my, my core view is that, that um, you know, there is heterogeneity to infrastructure and the apps that are running in your private data center being orchestrated by, say, a firewall and the load balancer um, generally are going to stay there. So our value proposition is really about providing that bridge to the, to the new world for your new applications. I think one of the real benefits, actually, I talked about in the, in, in the prepared remarks was the console Terraform sync capability, which basically allows you to update the configuration of legacy networking gear as part of your new application deployment. So I think the cost savings comes is a very, very easy value proposition around extending the life of your existing investments from maybe the, you know, the three-year view to the five-year view. Uh, in, in that sense, not having to replace that legacy gear because we are providing the bridge to the new world. So I think that's actually closer to how the conversation goes. We don't generally go in and talk to you and say, hey, you're running firewalls, uh, replace firewalls, because it would require you to rebuild the applications. It's more, hey, for your new applications, you probably don't need that firewall approach. Let us help you provide a vehicle to bridge to keep your old firewalls relevant, and in so doing, save the cost of having to you know, upgrade those, the, those to something newer. Um, but, you know, the, the cost value proposition is, is really, really strong, honestly, across all of our products, and, and in combination, even stronger. What you described is certainly a play, but it's but it's probably not the one we lead with. Understood, understood. And then uh, sort of a, another product and a topic that I wanted to revisit again, again, I think was part of an earlier question, which is around sort of modernization triggers. And it's a topic that I think we get quite often um, with respect to Terraform, but also with respect to Vault. And I think you sort of mentioned your strategic customer wins. Um, you landed uh, um, a, an, an enterprise Vault win. That customer started out in open source in 2019. And so I was wondering if you sort of, you know, there's any sort of narrative to draw between a customer landing with open source or starting with open source two, two and a half, three years ago, and then ultimately, um, be, you know, uh, becoming an enterprise paying customer, both on the Vault and the Chairform side. What is sort of that journey that they're going through um, to help us understand, um, you know, how these modernization triggers evolve over time? 
Yeah, I think that, that so I'll take, I'll take the Vault one first. You know, the, the idea that someone might be using Vault to, to basically authenticate the identity for a particular application in open source is, is how it begins. But it's sort of the minute that that gets sort of established as a central shared service that is a tier zero application to your company, it's sort of an immediate trigger where, right, it was okay that it was just running in, you know, on one machine previously, but now you have to run it as a central shared service. There's redundancy, there's replication. If that thing goes down, it's like the power being turned off for all the apps that speak to it. And once that realization is made, hold on a second, this is not just underpinning a single thing. This is actually a strategic tier zero application. It's a very simple conversion, and that's what ends up happening. There's sort of this natural maturation uh, through that organization, uh, and that's very, very consistent. Um, on, Ter on Terraform, it's, it's a slightly different transition. It is you know, someone, to Armand's point, our first priority was around market standardization to the greatest degree possible by making it ubiquitous. And then we built Terraform Cloud, which is that as the, as the example, to provide a broader workflow around people using Terraform to provision uh, infrastructure. So where, where someone may have initially adopted Terraform just as a provisioning tool on their, on their laptop, when it gets established as that tier zero application that is underpinning the entire organization's uh, provisioning process, now you need audit trails and policy and governance. And it's that notion of a single platform team ultimately needing to run something as a service for the organization maybe it's an easier way to envision the value proposition because to be clear, these are tier zero applications that you know that cannot go down. Uh, and that sort of underpins the, the the overall value proposition of the commercial products. All right. Thanks, Sanjay. All right. Next question please. Thank you. Our next question comes from Paul Wallravens with JMP Securities you may proceed. Oh, great. Thank you. Here, here's a different perspective on all this stuff. So, David Armand, is there a way in which a tighter capital market, uh, you know, tougher venture financing environment will help Hashi? You know, are you getting emails from interesting private companies who are like, you know, we'd like to talk about selling to you? Are you seeing less crazy pricing behavior from some competitors that are seeking to conserve cash or, or anything else like that? Yeah, I'd see on the maybe the two things separately. I, I think it's a little early. It's short version. I think the the private market's taken a while to 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 react. Um, so I, I think you know we'll certainly be disciplined and aware of what's happening in the private markets. Um, but it's it's early. Number two, in terms of the market dynamics, you know, in truth, uh, the competitive environment is not necessarily like there, there are not a lot of smaller companies that we compete with. Truthfully, you know, I think it's generally more of the market standardization around open source and then the engagement commercially is much more common for us. So, so you know, that long-term goal of driving standardization in order to provide an opportunity to be the partner of choice commercially is really more our model than competitively. But, yeah, if there are other startups trying to enter these markets, it certainly feels like it's gotten more difficult. Yeah, the, maybe the one thing I would add is uh, certainly we've felt you know, a bit of a tailwind on the recruiting side. Um, just because I think, you know, organizations and, you know, people looking around see that, hey, you know, HashiCorp just went through their IPO. We have, a, you know, a fortress balance sheet. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, definitely are in a different stage uh, relative to some of these folks that maybe had stratospheric valuations that are on their way back down to earth. Great. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Pat. Next question, please. Thank you. Our next question comes from Fatima Bulani with City. You may proceed. Hi, this is Joel on for Fatima. Uh, this one's just on console. Uh, are you able to share with us how budgetary and competitive dynamics are evolving here 
uh, particularly as we see larger cyber vendors become more vocal about the service mesh opportunities. And then also related to that, um, given your recent announcement of the SVP for networking, I was just wondering if you could update us on engineering, product design, where that stands, as well as the, uh, the R&D roadmap and sales roadmap. And then I have a quick follow-up. Thank you. Sure, yeah, great question. You know, I think in general what we feel, uh, you know, optimistic about is that, you know, I think the market awareness and maturity around service mesh has evolved significantly, right? I think uh, certainly, you know, 18 months, 24 months ago, uh, relatively limited awareness. Uh, and I think now, I think we're seeing that, you know, we're moving out of just the bleeding edge of early adopters into the early majority, really starting to think about it and prioritize it as an infrastructure project. So that's certainly encouraging for us, as now we feel like there's sort of a broader market that, that's sort of aware and, and starting to, you know, go through that conversation. You know, from an R&D investment perspective, yep, we announced uh, Gurpreet Singh joined as, as our new SVP running our networking group. We are very excited for, for him to join and lead that. You know, certainly an area where we are, you know, very deeply invested, you know, both with console as a service mesh. We, you know, uh, had some updates to our API gateway capability in the quarter as well, and then obviously our HCP console offerings as a managed service. So sort of continuing to invest deeply across all of those fronts, and I think, you know, again, pointing to some of these customers that are now extending from Terraform and Vault only to bring in console and really speaks to, I think, our platform opportunity uh, and, and really the, the chance to be a strategic vendor. Just one point I'll add, because your question around the dynamics, I, I think we have learned that before you can tackle the service mesh problem, you have to have generally solve the provisioning and security problem, <laughs> right? Because uh, until you move to the notion of, of, of service-based identity, uh, it's hard to move to service-based orchestration, just to double-click on it a little bit. So th that sort of underscores Armand's point, is our focus is on building the trust of the platform teams, Terraform and Vault, and then that, in a sense, makes us the incumbent for the service mesh opportunity because Vault at that point is the identity broker. Okay, great. And then just a quick follow-up here on uh, consumption models. So many of these software peers have been, you know, alluding to moderating usage or uh, consumption patterns. Are you seeing a similar dynamic develop across certain customer cohorts and end markets? Or if not, you know, what is keeping your adoption or pricing model more insulated? And that's all for me. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Why, why don't I take that quickly? Uh, you know, uh, from an, uh, from a results perspective, there there really is no impact on consumption uh, on our on our revenue. It's mostly entitlement subscription based. So over time, you'll see you'll see uh, more of that. But at this time, we are uh, mostly uh, subscription revenue that has entitlements. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Catherine Gunn with. Goldman Sachs, you may proceed. Hey, uh, thank you very much. Uh, congrats on the quarter. I'm curious to get your perspective on, on two things. One is the HCP. Uh, are we uh, at a point where uh, the, pro the, the service is poised for prime time inflection, or are there certain things from a product development perspective that, that, uh, that you're looking to, to invest in that uh, could enable HCP to uh, really inflect? That's one. And number two, with respect to uh, Cloud migrations vis-a-vis uh, -vis expanding enterprises. At, at what point uh, do does Hashi get typically involved, and is it at, at a fairly mature phase of the cloud migration process, or is it at the front end? The reason to ask that question is if, due to the economic uncertainty, uh, people stop uh, for a little bit, pause the cloud migration, 
uh, does that impact Harshi at all, or are you getting involved at a later stage of the migration process that at the front end, even if things slow down a little bit, that uh, from a provisioning, networking, security standpoint, you, you get involved much farther along the way, and maybe that could help you. I, I'm not sure how exactly to think about this. I wanted to get your thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, great question, Cash. Um, yeah, so maybe take the first question. You know, in terms of sort of the the momentum on cloud, I think we feel good that there's strong, consistent, you know, delivery from an R and D perspective. You know, I think there's a lot more we can do that will continue to accelerate that, right? You know, again, if we look at the beginning of last year, we entered with effectively one cloud product. We exited last year with three on a single cloud provider. You know, we're now at five cloud products. Uh, you know, across two providers. So I think what you're going to continue to see from us, and, you know, we have our upcoming user conference in the next uh, three, four weeks here, uh, is you'll see more momentum in terms of adding additional support for net new products. You'll see additional cloud providers, additional cloud regions. And so I think each one of those, you know, continues to make that a little bit easier and expand the opportunity ahead of us. So I don't think there's going to be a particular inflection moment so much as as we continue to deliver, uh, you know, it will just, you know, continuously improve. And on your second question, uh, you know, you think we, we think about the usage of our products in two phases, in which step one is around, you know, our focus on practitioner adoption in open source. When people very much begin their cloud programs, they use our products in open source because that's what the practitioners use. And then the phase two is when they step back and go, hold on a second, I need to systematize this, and that's the, the, the platform team creation. So, you know, that's the motion in the first first, first instance of using our open source products, and, you know, that's the, where the huge numbers come from. And then in the second phase is when they become our commercial customers. And I think you know, irrespective of where you are in your journey, you are going to go through that those two processes. So, you know, I certainly am optimistic about the tailwinds around secular cloud adoption uh, and whether it's early stage, just open source usage or, or later stage uh, commercial usage. You know, one leads to the other. Uh, so certainly the, the opportunity uh, is, is, is a very durable one. It's not a, it's not a one-time thing for us. Super. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Cash. Thank you. I would now like to turn the call back over to Mr. Dave McChannon for any closing remarks. I'd just like to express my thanks for the participation for everyone here. Um, we appreciate you dialing in and for all the questions and look forward to speaking with everybody soon. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for participating in today's conference. This concludes the program. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a wonderful day.